All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, uh, recording today from the giant tin can on the mountain in Woodstock, New York. I'm so happy to be saying these words again. To, I was a little worried I wasn't going to remember how to say the intro, but there's nothing new, of <laughs> course, there because I forget that on a regular basis. But I'm, I'm really happy to be back with everyone. And, um, you know, thank you all for the continued emails and messages that you send me and Michael about how much you love the podcast and how much it means to you, because it really made me feel like it makes me feel like I know people and I know the audience. And it, it really made me miss everyone in some sort of strange, wonderful way. Enough of that mushy stuff. Uh, here with me, as usual, were you getting nervous, people? You probably were. <laughs> probably like, oh my God, is he not there? He's come down from. He's <laughs> he's come down from the mountain. He's got a long gray beard. <laughs> the, the hermit on the hill, Mister Michael. Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I am also, I also feel like I'm shaking off the rust a little bit, but yes, I'm, I'm good. It's been, uh, you know, uh, a, a nice but busy uh, break that we took because it wasn't really a break. It was more <laughs> just getting ready for season three here. Yeah. Well, we did get a break from being uh, self-critical. We got a break from, from, um, <laughs> from the, uh, God, do I actually sound like that? And <laughs> that's um, right. <laughs> how many times can a person say um? Yeah, all those all those things that sometimes people say to me, by the way, that you know, how do I do this? Because they hate hearing themselves talk. And I'm like Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> We just do it anyway. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. It was a break from that. It was a break from being really self-critical. But otherwise, yeah, we were working on, we have so many great guests coming up. This is the beginning of season three, which is really exciting. And mm -hmm. we're just super, super committed. We've been working on a lot of really cool stuff that I think we're going to get into more next show about what more mm -hmm. of what we've been up to so, so many announcements <laughs> many announcements but stay stay tuned and yeah just just really um you and our associate producer the third leg of the stool tell ourselves back <laughs> the three of us have have been i have to say we we do work hard of course but i love you guys so much that I always look forward to our Zoom meetings when I see yes. see your heads um, on the <laughs> um, Taylor right now is in Montreal and you're in New Jersey and I'm in Woodstock and um, when we come together, which is usually once a week, um, and then ten thousand phone mm -hmm. calls in between, but um, <laughs> <laughs> and ten thousand emails. <laughs> what did we say on the Zoom? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Forgot to write that note down. All right. So enough silliness. We have a great um, show today that we're going to talk about in a second. But I want to make an announcement. Please bear with me. 
I'm teaching a workshop again uh, for Malou's workshops this winter, and I'm working my ass off on it. And I really want people to sign up so that my hard work is uh, not for naught. Yes. It's called Building a Body of Work in the Real World. And I'll just read you a little blurb. What makes a strong, fully developed body of work? What does the life cycle of a project look like from concept to execution to completion? Sasha Wolf, that's me, will (laughs) present a seven-week class focused on project development, closely examining and dissecting the elements required of a fully developed photographic project. Through lectures presented on a wide variety of photographers, Wolf will examine the concepts of recurring motifs and forms in the work, the importance of elements such as distinct color palette and point of view, as well as the relationship between concept and the aesthetics you choose to work with. Also cover different working methods, including short, medium, and long-term projects, research-based projects, and projects that take shape organically through a shoot-first, edit-later approach. Okay, blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> every week, I'm, I'm going to do a lecture, and then I'm going to bring on a guest who's connected to the sort of topic at hand. And so my first week is Todd Heido. Uh, my second week is mm. uh, Catherine Opie. My third week wow. is Kelly Connell then Raheem Fortune, then Doug Dubois, and then Barbara oh. Bosworth. So it's a really Cow. great all-star <laughs> lineup. Um, <laughs> so wow. sign up, go to Lalu's workshops and, and sign up. Okay. That that was not a fake reaction. I had not heard the list of guests before. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, amazing. It's a, yeah, it's a good, good group. <laughs> good group. Anyway, okay, so our guest today was the photographer, writer, curator, Aaron Schumann. And I friggin' loved talking to him <laughs> so much. And he was one of those people yeah. who I was like, I've, I've known about, I've, I've been looking at his work and reading his words for so many years, but I never talked to him. And by the end of our conversation, I was like, I really hope this guy and I become friends. I just, mm-hmm. just loved him. So uh, we, yeah, what were your thoughts? Yeah, just listening to, I got to listen to a little bit of your interview uh, as I was uh, kind of hosting it from my office. <laughs> right. <laughs> because Aaron uh, is overseas and uh, in the United Kingdom. And uh, I loved the the little snippets I got to hear in between teaching and uh, visiting my office were fantastic. And I especially loved, now having edited this show, the way Aaron talks about research as just, you know, not this sort of singular, you know, go to the library, look things up, go to your computer, look things up, but just your life, like your life is filled with research right. and yes. it's a tool yeah. yep. for you. It, it's just so good. So good. And yep. it, it flows through the, throughout the conversation and it's included in so many other parts of the conversation, which you would have to listen to. I, I think that, you know, what's so charming about Aaron is he's obviously quite brilliant, but the way he relates his theories and concepts is is so down mm. to earth and it's mm-hmm. you know without any pretense and anyway he was just really wonderful and i thought he he said so many things that are really useful and smart and so yeah i could i could just imagine as your uh, a master's program thesis instructor, he would be amazing. Amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to this fantastic guy, Michael, who I adore and so happy to be back, <laughs> right back on air you. with you. Um, <laughs> if you don't mind, uh, please take it away. 
My pleasure, and here is your conversation with Aaron Schumann. Aaron Schumann, welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So start as we always do. If you could just tell listeners, you know, about yourself and how you got to where you are today and where you are today. Okay, that would be sure. Great. Right. So I'm a photographer and a writer and a curator and educator. I was born in America. I grew up in Massachusetts. I then moved to New York City to go to university uh, and studied photography at NYU, Tisch School of the Arts. And then after that, after a couple of years in New York, I moved to the UK, and I've been living in England ever since, um, since about 2004, on and off. And yeah, I, I now kind of, I run a, a master's program at the University of the West of England in Bristol, and I make my own work, and I contribute writing to various books, monographs, magazines, and occasionally curate exhibitions for various institutions, festivals, and so on. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is because of all those things you do, because I, I think it's really wonderful the way you've sort of put together such a rich and diverse career within, obviously, the scope of, of fine art photography. But, you know, I've known who you are for a very long time. I've known your work, but I've also, you know, I'm just constantly coming across your writing which is fantastic. Actually, getting ready to talk to you today, I um, read an interview you did with William Klein. That was oh, really yeah. fantastic. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're both laughing because he he was very funny. Yeah, he, um, he was funny and 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 not not the um, yeah not the most conventional of interviews, but but one that was really really fun and, uh, and quite an adventure to kind of get. So that was fun. Yeah. Yes, I like the way he kept um, referring to his solar-powered <laughs> robotic cat that was on the windowsill. Anyway, <laughs> the, the listeners are going to be like, "What are they talking about?" <laughs> you can find um, it on the on the Ap Aperture website if you want. If you want yeah. Yes, yeah, you you do a lot of writing for Aperture. So, yeah, I mean, I just you know, I think people are often trying to figure out how you know you get out of art school. Yeah, And there's the, okay, what, what, what in God's name am I going to do now? How am I going to make a living? And I just think you've really put together this, this really interesting, you know, these building blocks that build on each other, but also sort of move out to the side. And, and I just sort of wonder how that all happened and if it was always in your head or if no, you I thought, mean, well, I'm, I'm going to... No, it was... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it was, it was very spontaneous and accidental, really. So ever since I was kind of 15 years old, I've wanted to be a photographer. Um, and like I said, I went and studied photography at university and I was doing some assisting while I was in New York and also doing some internships at galleries. So I started getting interested in not only making photographs, but trying to understand how they work and why they impact me and kind of uh, have any effect on me. And I was also seeing kind of lots of different sides of the 
industry, for want of a better word, in the sense that I was interning at galleries like Luring Augustine and Andrea Rosen. So I was seeing photographers like Larry Clark and Gregory Crudson. And again, this is the mid-90s, so it was kind of also a time when photography was really coming to the forefront of um, contemporary art. I also started doing a double major in art history during that time as well, because I, I just enjoyed taking art history classes while I was at college. So um, I just kept pursuing that. And um, yeah, so I, I started seeing photography. I mean, I always try to look at photography through the eye of, of a maker, of somebody who really wants to understand why and how work is made. But but I also, mm -hmm. in my studies, started thinking a little bit more broadly about how it functions outside of you know my own <laughs> life um, and how other people's pictures function as well. And then when I finished college, I did a few years of the kind of grind of freelancing, which meant that I spent a lot of time in my bedroom waiting for the phone to ring. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and a friend of mine had started, this is around early 2000s, so the internet was kind of becoming more and more prevalent. And um, a friend of mine had started an online magazine that was related to poetry and his interest in poetry. And so I started looking at at that and getting excited about that. And I also had a friend at the time who was editing or be the assistant editor at Blindspot magazine, which was a great magazine, photographic magazine mm -hmm. um, Fantastic. In, in New yeah. York. And I really admired what they did and how they, they made work um, and how they made their publication featuring various portfolios and so on. So I decided I'd teach myself the very, very basics of building a website and start my own magazine, really just as, as something to kind of keep myself busy and keep my head in the game. And also to start engaging with not only my own pictures and just looking inward, but also looking outwards to other people's work that was out there. And so, so yeah, I started the online magazine in 2004. It was called Seesaw Magazine. And really it was very, very basic. It featured four or five portfolios of photographers whose, whose work I had come across and who I liked. And also, I started using that as, that platform as an excuse to be able to interview other photographers. I discovered quickly that by having a magazine, I could email Todd Heido or Stephen Shore or Richard Mizrak and say, "Hi, can I interview you for this magazine?" Whereas if I if I just called them, you know, out of the blue and said, "I'm a photographer too, can we hang out?" They probably <laughs> would have hung up on me. <laughs> but just by having this so-called brand that I was building it, you know, in my, like I said, in my bedroom. Um, yeah, it gave you legitimacy. It, yeah, it gave me an excuse to, to start interviewing photographers, start writing about photography more and more, and also helped me build a bit of a, you know, a network and a, friendships with my contemporaries and other photographers that were kind of emerging around that same time. So yeah, I mean, the first issue of that magazine had an unknown photographer called Richard Moss and another unknown photographer called Esther Teichman who became very close friends of mine and then have gone on to do amazing kind of things. But it also featured interviews with, you know, some well-established photographers, like I said, Stephen Shore and so on. So it started to draw an audience. And that eventually led me to getting commissioned to write for various publications. Firstly, kind of book reviews or doing interviews or people wanting to rerun the interviews that I'd published on Seesaw. And then, yeah, and then it kind of snowballed into getting occasional commissions or me pitching ideas to editors asking, you know, would you be interested in me writing about this new artist or this new book or this exhibition coming up? And then that accidentally kind of led on to me being in, invited to 
curate an exhibition for PhotoFest in Houston in 2010. So they kind of called me out of the blue and they said, we have, I think there were three or four different curators that were each curating one show. And all of them were coming from museums or institutions, but they wanted, they kind of got in touch with me and said, you seem to have a real finger on the pulse of what's going on and we'd love you to curate an exhibition. And I did respond kind of saying, look, I've, I'm not a curator. I've never curated anything. And they said, well, your each issue of your magazine is is curated. So we just want you mm-hmm. to do, we want you to do that for, for the festival. So yeah, so that's what got me into curating. And all of that is to say that it was almost this tangent that went a little bit too too far in terms of my career because the the writing and the curation and then eventually that led on to teaching all of that stuff in my head was always on the periphery of my own practice but of course you only have so much time in the day and a lot of that stuff started taking over a lot of my time and so to a certain extent my own practice even though I was constantly making new work I wasn't really putting it out there or disseminating it as much as I as I probably should have been so yeah in in 2014, I, I kind of made a decision to stop doing Seesaw Magazine. All of the issues are still online and available, but I haven't published one since then. And to really focus on making sure that before it was too late, I started publishing the books I wanted to publish, making the projects I wanted to make, and getting my own work out there as a, as a maker of pictures as well as a, as a commentator or critic or you know curator. You just said that you know working on Seesaw and working on these curatorial projects was probably not great as far as getting your own work out there. But do you think it had any effect on the quality of your own work just in terms of concentration and, and you know, just how much, you know, really sort of intense, mindful dedication it takes to make a new body of work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have, you know, in the long term, I have no regrets. In the short term, you know, <laughs> it was slightly frustrating because I was constantly being commissioned based on my writing or other things. And I kept kind of wanting to say, but I'm a photographer too, uh, you know. But I think the first two issues of Seesaw, I did put my own work in it. And I got an email out of the blue from Richard Mizrak saying, this is before I'd ever met him or interviewed him or anything, but saying he basically had somehow stumbled across the website and he said um you know i really love the magazine i like the interviews that you're doing the work that you're showing is great but really be careful not to turn this into a vanity project don't incorporate your own work into everything that you do and i took that to heart you know i did because i really didn't want the magazine to, Mm -hmm. to be seen as me just kind of trying to weasel my way into the industry and my work and my work into, into the industry that way so i took that to heart and so, so yeah, I really started separating the two and then the three things from one another. But that said, l- like you were saying, I definitely learned so much about how other people make work. I absorbed a huge amount of information and, and research, you know, looking into the history of photography, looking into traditions and lineages and, and meeting other photographers and un- trying to understand their practice. And from the start, like I said, I was always really interested in approaching it from a photographer's perspective. So I wasn't trying to play the role of a, a theorist or a critic whenever I was writing or curating. It was much more of me trying to engage with other people's work and interviewing them from the perspective of, you know, I'm a photographer and I just want to understand how you make things and why you make them and what do you look at in order to get inspiration and where does it come from and all of, all of those kinds of questions. And of course, yeah, I, I definitely feel like all of that 
uh, research and time spent thinking around those ideas has had a huge impact on the way that I make my own work and the way that I think about my own work and, and also the way that I put that work out into the world, how I edit the books, how I sequence the books, how I you know, exhibit my work in gallery contexts and so on. So, so yeah, I, I would definitely say I'm, I'm glad I went through all of that now so that I really do feel confident and, you know, I understand what I'm, what I'm doing and what I'm trying to do when I'm making my own work as much as anything. Well, what are you doing and what are you trying to do? <laughs> I mean, you, you have a new book out, Sonata with Mac, which is very beautiful. I want to talk about that. But, yep. you know, your practice is definitely hard to sort of pinpoint. I mean, the things that jumped out at me were, A, that it was hard to pinpoint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, B, that there's a certain amount of distance in a lot of the work because it feels to me like there is often an underlying message about politics of place and that sort of keeps the work from being too personal, that there's observational and observing a sort of larger issue like, you know, the place yeah. or the, you know, how the United Kingdom is as a place and its history. And, you know, even with some of your more personal work, it still has a kind of political and and almost didactic quality at times. So, yeah, how, how do you think about the work that you're making? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, all of the work that I've made in the last kind of seven or eight years is definitely coming from a personal place and is founded upon a personal experience, personal perspective, personal history, that sort of thing. But I tend not to make the work particularly autobiographical on an, mm -hmm. in, a, in an explicit sense. So I've, you know, I've made three books so far, the first of which was called Folk, and that was looking at ethnography and an ethnographic museum in Poland. But that whole project started off from the fact that my great-grandfather on my mother's side had come from that region of Poland. His culture and community had been documented by this museum at the turn of the century. And I was interested in engaging and exploring with this place you know, originally through my family connection to it. But inevitably, it kind of went off and veered off in another direction because I wasn't particularly, once I got there, I, I realized that I wasn't really interested in finding, quote unquote, finding my roots. I was much more interested in trying to understand how that culture had been preserved and cared for and exhibited and, and recorded through the context of ethnography and, the, and that museum. Yeah, so it, it comes from a personal connection, but it also has a kind of, yeah, that one has a particular interest in the field of ethnography and how cultures and in particular folk culture or everyday commonplace culture rather than kings and queens and so on are recorded and placed into a historical context. And that's where the maybe a political kind of slant comes into it in the sense that it's not political with a capital P, but with a small p in terms of trying, mm -hmm. trying to understand how memory functions, how photography works within the context of, of research and history. So that, that all played an important role there. Then with the second book, Slant, which came out in 2019, again, the project is is entirely made within a kind of 20 or 30 mile radius of where I was born and raised and spent the first 18 years of my life in Western Massachusetts. 
but also again so i had a very close personal connection to that place i knew it like the back of my hand in the sense of of photographing it i'd spent many teenage years frustrated that there was quote unquote nothing to photograph there but of course when i went back 20 years later i realized there was plenty to photograph there and also i was engaging with that place from the perspective of somebody who had been away from it and had lived in another country for you know more than a decade and a half so i was going back and kind of rediscovering that place and my connection to it but from this slightly altered perspective of of an outsider and an insider at the same time and that work was also being made during the course of the rise of trump and the election 2016 and then followed on into the first couple of years of of trump's terms term so yeah so that that work again took on a slightly political with a lowercase p perspective in terms of thinking about how certain things were coming to the forefront in American culture as I was seeing it from this perspective and the kind of rise of more prevalent, I don't know, xenophobia, misogyny, paranoia, and also just kind of bizarre behavior that was taking place. So so again- Do you want to just explain what, what slant, what the premise is? Because- Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the the premise the premise of that book was really um, I had gone back to visit my parents in 2014 and was looking through their local newspaper, which comes through letterbox every uh, every week. Mm-hmm. There's always a page every week in the newspaper that has all of it's called the police reports, and it's all of the reasons why the police had been called out during the course of that week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I don't know if they published that just to entertain people or to prove that people's tax dollars are going to a good cause. But it's, you know, it's a small college town. There's not a huge amount of criminal activity going on, uh, at least not on the surface. And a lot of the reports are really kind of banal and boring, you know, fender benders and I don't know some frat kids getting too drunk and I don't know stealing a fire hydrant or whatever but within the context of those police reports there were also some very slightly strange surreal absurd reports going on of people doing very strange things calling the police thinking that there was you know um I don't know the sky was on fire but it happened to be the sun coming up for the day or mm-hmm. fo- or calling the police because they were being somebody had asked uh, somebody to photograph their feet downtown and they felt threatened, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So it's just kind of silly, strange um, happenings that were taking place. And so then I went back and started making photographs in response to some of these texts and some of the ideas that they were raising and not trying to directly illustrate the texts, but more to kind of make pictures that had a similar perspective. The photographs are quite deadpan in the same way that the the reports are written the pictures look like there's not anything really going on in them, but there's tiny little details that ha- that suggest something strange or surreal or absurd or sinister or whatever. And so, yeah, so it was playing with that idea of, of mixing those texts and those images together to form a sort of pseudo-documentary, <laughs> I don't know, project around these themes that I was that I was kind of engaging with when I was going back to that place. But because of my very, mm-hmm. because of my personal connection to that place, I also, I had some emotional investment in it as well because I'd always seen that part of the the country in particular. Kind of, I mean, I don't know if you're, I'm sure you are familiar with Western Massachusetts, but it's you know, yes, I, yeah. I grew up in Northampton. It's a very liberal, left leaning, mm-hmm. quote unquote, open minded 
place. It's very Democrat. It's very, you know, so I always felt growing up there that I was living in this little bubble that was maybe very different from what might be happening in other parts of the country. But of course, when I was going back, I was starting to see some of those things that I that I always thought weren't very representative of my own place uh, starting to creep into that place. So like I said, you know, a bit more signs of xenophobia or paranoia or very conservative approaches to culture and society. And that was quite shocking to me having left that place. I just want to mention, for people who haven't seen the book, I mean, you can see the project on your website, but I think the sort of form of it works really well with what you're describing because, you know, at times the clippings are very funny. At times they're disturbing. At times the pictures are sort of funny and at times they're sort of just like there is a way in which the whole project keeps you off balance that I think is really effective. Yeah. And a lot of that comes from, I mean, the title of the book is Slant and that that comes from um, the town where the photographs are, most of the photographs are made is Amherst, Massachusetts, which is where Emily Dickinson lived and Mm -hmm. wrote. And at one point I went on a tour of the Emily Dickinson Museum and the tour guide was explaining how Emily Dickinson used what's called slant rhyme in her poetry, which is where Mm -hmm. two lines which are supposed to rhyme almost rhyme, but they don't quite. So there's -hmm. there's an understanding when you're reading the poem that those two lines have a relationship to one another that's connected and that almost run parallel, but there's a a slight slanted kind of connection that's happening there that, that creates a little bit of dissonance and it kind of makes you a bit uncomfortable because you're expecting it to rhyme and it doesn't quite. So when I heard that kind of explanation of slant rhyme during that tour, I thought, wow, that would be a really interesting way to think about the texts and the images because I really mm-hmm. didn't I, I really didn't want the texts to be kind of captions for the pictures and I didn't want the pictures to be illustrations for the texts. But I did see them working together in a kind of poetic way and kind of feeding off of one another and feeding into one another in kind of interesting ways. So yeah, I was in, I was interested in creating that kind of sense of a relationship between the two, but without it being too obvious. Well, I think that's a great example of different ways in which an artist can be inspired to sort of take their project in a certain direction based on, you know, some you know, happenstance, like being at the Emily Dickinson Museum and just always being mindful of what you're working on and and being open to being inspired by these little nuggets. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, that's something that I that I talk with my students quite a lot about. I talk about their research being, you know, research is something that exists within your whole life, that it's not something that you need to consciously commit to by going to a library Mm -hmm. or, you know, reading difficult texts all the time or, you know, thinking deeply and heavily about philosophy and psychology. I mean, all of those things are very important, but I also think you need to be open to sources of inspiration and input all around you, whether it's text messages between you and your friends to overhearing a conversation on a bus or a train in the seat behind you to Mm -hmm. going to the movies or stumbling across a a TikTok video, whatever it might be, you know, but all of these things are potentially useful to you in lots of different ways. And I, and I really try, I try to practice that as much as I can myself. Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic advice. Your students are lucky. So let's talk about Sonata. I want to tell us about that project. 
Yeah, so Sonata was a project that I started in 2019. I've always been interested in and wanting to make a body of work about Italy and traveling through Italy. And I've spent a lot of time going back and forth to Italy making terrible photographs because it's one of those places that's very easy to fall into traps of cliche and mm-hmm, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so this time I, I was determined to kind of tackle it head on and see if I could make something of it. And what I was really interested in was not so much doing a documentary project about Italy or trying to pretend I knew what the culture or the politics or the experience of being an Italian was, but I was more interested in that history and culture that I myself participate in of using Italy as a place of the imagination, a place that people go to to discover their emotions, their sensations, encounter, you know, food, um, la dolce vita, blah, blah, blah. And the idea that there's this place that many people have traveled to over the course of centuries to not only kind of see the place itself, but to experience something within themselves and in their own imagination. And in a sense, the project is really more of a project about the imagined Italy than it is about Italy at all. So yeah, I started looking into and researching things like the Grand Tour and the reasons why, firstly, kind of Northern Europeans and English people, you know, the British people, and then eventually Americans started continually going to this place and trying to, f- to find something there including philosophers. There's a famous story of um, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was, you know, a nihilist and kind of the, one of the darkest people on earth at the time. And, and uh, he, would, he went to Italy to kind of to free his soul and to kind of enjoy life once again. So I was really interested in that idea because it's, it's something that I've done myself throughout my own life in that country. So I started to make this work based on that and trying to make pictures that really somehow evoked or captured the sensations that we encounter when we go to to this place. So the book is initially inspired by Goethe's uh, Italian journey, which he did in the late 18th century. And he talks about going to this place and, and discovering sense impressions and having f- clear, fresh eyes. And so I was really interested in that idea of going to Italy and trying to have clear, fresh eyes and also to to really become obsessed with sense impressions. So the photographs are really trying to evoke taste, sound, smell, you know, all of all of these things and then and kind of indulge those feelings and also try to to convey them to the people that are looking at the pictures as well. How do you so these books were done by Mac? Yep. How do you develop a relationship with someone like Michael Mack? How does how does that happen where, you know, you wind up being a Mack uh, artist? Yeah, I mean, my my relationship with Mac, I think, initially started through my writing. So I'd, I'd written a bit about projects that Mac had published and various photographers' books that they'd made. I was then approached by Alex Soth to write some texts for a book that they were making about, it was called, it was the original version of Gathered Leaves. And in that, mm-hmm. they they wanted a, a collection of texts that would accompany Alec's collection of pictures. And because I had interviewed Alec quite a few times and written about his work quite a few times, um, they approached me to do that. So I did a bit of writing for them, and that was published in 2016. And then I think like most people, I was really hesitant and slightly afraid to show my own work and approach a publisher with my own project, but eventually kind of worked up the courage. I, you know, I'd, I'd been working on Slant for um, 
three or four years, I thought I thought I had something substantial there. I had some strong images. I had some strong texts, and I had a, an idea of how I wanted to make it into a book. And so I just emailed a, a PDF, a, a kind of very very basic PDF of the of the work to Michael and said, if this is of any 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 interest, let me know. And if not. No worries, you know, I don't. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I got an email back saying, "Do you want to come in for a meeting and we can talk about it?" And that's where it kind of started. And then eventually, yeah, we we developed the the project together along with his uh, his team and his designer, Morgan. And yeah, it took a good year and a half to to finally go on press, but it was well worth it. So that's that's how that relationship really really started. Well, I think it's important what you just said, because it is intimidating to, you know, working with someone, you know, sort of in one capacity and be known or thought of in that capacity and then sort of reach out to them and say, hey, but look at my artwork. And that's obviously yeah. extremely difficult, but, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And obviously it worked out well for you. So courage, yeah. everyone. <laughs> no, courage. I think that was, yeah, I mean, it was definitely... Um, like you said, not yeah. I had nothing to lose, and except my pride, <laughs> I guess. And right. you know, and that's not worth much to me. So I can, uh, yeah, I can. I, I, I find you know, working up the courage to do that. It's again something I, I talk to students a lot about, is that you know, making the work is only half the battle. You actually have to to share it <laughs> and show it to people mm-hmm. and get it out into mm-hmm. the world. And I don't think there's much to lose by doing that. Other than you know, you know, you might get some good criticism or good feedback, or you might realize who your audience is and who it isn't, or um, you can only learn from from doing it. So I would really, yeah, I would really encourage people to try to to get over any fears you might have, because I've seen too many great bodies of work disappear under people's beds or in their hard drives, never to be seen again, because they just didn't have the um, the courage to to put it out there. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where some people genuinely have the self-promotion gene and they're really comfortable doing that. Yeah. um, I think most artists are not, or at least a good portion of artists are not. And of course, you have to do it anyway. It doesn't matter whether you, you know, I often meet people who feel that because they don't come to it naturally, that they just shouldn't do it. Yeah. And it's like, well, you have to do it. There's so many things <laughs> in life that we, we ha- <laughs> you know, you have to do whether you feel like you're you're made for it or it's a real deep natural characteristic or not. And and certainly if you want to be an artist and you want people to see your work, then whether or not you feel comfortable, you just have to do it and dig deep and think about what it is you're so scared of happening because it's easy to say I'm, I'm scared they won't like it and I'll be embarrassed, but you have to go further. Well, then what? Yeah. You know, yeah. W- what happens if you're embarrassed? I mean, does the world blow up? I mean, <laughs> is someone you love going to die because you, you were humiliated? I mean, so to really try and investigate those feelings and you, you sort of have to if you're going to be in this position because you, you are making yourself vulnerable, of course. Yeah, and I think I think it's also thinking about the ways in which you go about doing that because some people are more introverted and some people are more extroverted. And, so, and there are lots of different avenues to you know, get your work out there and to, to meet people, to network with people. So, you know, I don't think 
if you're not comfortable going to openings and schmoozing and networking and doing all of that, then then maybe the best way is to is to go about it through writing to people or emailing people or actually sending them things in the post and vice versa. You know, there's I think there's all kinds of ways now that people are able to share themselves and their work with others. And I don't think I agree. There's no there's no real there's not no real formula, but but I think whatever you do, you just you you have to do something <laughs> because because nobody's going to come knocking on your door saying, do you happen to be an artist and can I look at your work? You know, <laughs> Right, that's right, <laughs> by any chance. <laughs> so you've mentioned uh, a number of times your students, and I think I just want you to talk about this because it's it's not simply that you're teaching a class. So can you just, just talk a little bit about what happened when you were asked to <laughs> yeah. set up a program? Yeah, no, I had been teaching for about 10 years as a kind of part-time lecturer and, and uh, teacher in different different universities in the UK. And then um, there was uh, the university that I work at now was thinking about starting a master's program. They have, they have a very strong undergraduate program already developed and, and doing really great things, but they, they had ambitions to start up more of a research culture at the university and build postgraduate programs as well. And so five years ago, they approached me seeing if I might be interested and then, you know, went through a whole round of interviews and so on. But all of that is to say that I was really lucky in the sense that I could develop my own program. And what I felt like was was the most appropriate way to deliver um, a master's program in the way that, that I wanted to. And so, so yeah, I didn't inherit kind of a program that was already existing. I was able to design it along with colleagues into something that I that we felt like was really valuable and and useful for students. So the course now is it's a year and a half long course, um, and the way that it's designed is firstly we ask students to um, come to us and with a with an idea for a body of work, a long term project that they can develop over the course of a year, and. Initially, they spend their first um, three months doing two things, one of which is researching that project. And when I say research, it's that kind of expanded sense of research that I was talking about earlier. Um, so they might be reading philosophy, economics, politics, as well as going to the movies and hanging out with their friends and, and all of that stuff and trying to build a real foundation for their body of work. And at the same time they're doing that, we also really encourage them to experiment with their practice and try new things and to step outside of their comfort zone just to test the waters so that they're not playing it safe too much when they when they come to make, mm -hmm. to make their project. And after that first three months of kind of play in terms of practice and research, in terms of building a foundation for an idea, then we kind of set them loose to make the work over the course of a year. And they develop their, their project, their body of work, whatever that might be. And we have a very open, broad-minded sense of, of what that could be. But we do want it to be something that by the end of the their studies, it does feel like it's um, substantial and solid and has you know some weight to it, but also isn't something that continues to be a work in progress and is open-ended and never will end. Because the last three months of the course, we really spend doing what we were just talking about, which is really trying to help and support them to disseminate that work and to put it out into the world in all kinds of different ways, um, not only as a photo book or a, and going to curators and, and speaking to exhibitions and festivals, but also thinking about how that work might play a role in other sorts of disciplines and areas and what 
what are their aspirations for their future, not only in terms of their practice, but do they want to go into teaching or do they want to go into commercial work or do they, you know, all sorts of different directions that people go in, community-based work and so on. So, um, so yeah, so we were really lucky to be able to kind of to build a course that we felt really served the students well and not only supported them in, in making a body of work, but also gave them a little bit of a safety net and a safe space to start to test the waters outside of the, the institution, outside of the university, and put it out into the world a bit more. Before we wind down, I want to ask you, you know, you are, I think, <laughs> I feel, yeah. a very likable person, very decent, kind, sensitive, smart. Thank you. <laughs> and those things obviously go a long way out into the world. I'm always sort of stressing to artists how important networking is just like, for some reason, a lot of times artists think, well, networking is for bankers or real estate yeah. agents, or but not them. And it's like, no, you know, networking is important in every aspect of life, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for a million reasons. But to always expand your network means you're always giving yourself more chances to be asked to do something or to participate. And I think that you know, it's clear that you you sort of have had that type of understanding of, of life and have been given these fantastic opportunities because of your understanding of that. And as I said, to begin with, your general likability and everyone likes to work with a nice person. And But yeah. can you just give the listeners some advice on beyond what I just said or... Yeah. I mean, I building think I on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from my perspective, I really see photography as a culture and a community, and to a mm -hmm, certain extent, mm -hmm. a, to a certain extent, a family, even if it's a dysfunctional one. And <laughs> I'm personally, even though, yes, I I support myself and I earn my living from from being involved in this this world. I'm not in it for the money or the fame or the prestige. You know, I'm I'm in it because I want to be a part of this community. I want to be a part of this family. Mm -hmm. And I want to take this culture, you know, I want to take what I've learned about the, the, the history of this culture and the present of this culture into the future. I want to develop new audiences. I want to excite people about this medium that, that I am in love with and, and that I obsess over constantly. So I guess in terms of, yeah, I think networking, that word sometimes can feel a little bit, I don't know. Slimy? Yeah, superficial or <laughs> or a little bit too, like you said, business-like, you know. Um, and uh, it's not not so much slimy, but it's more just like, um, yeah, just a little bit clinical. Well, glad-handing. Uh, yeah, or, a little yeah. bit clinical or whatever. And to be honest, like if, mm -hmm. I'm, if I'm going to an opening, I want to see the work on the walls. I also want to see my friends and the people that I like yes. and the people that I admire. And I want to have interesting yep. conver conversations with them. And I'm not there to sell myself in an explicit sense of, of the word. You know, I'm not pushing my work onto people or whatever in those scenarios. But I am interested in developing relationships with them that may or may not, you know, turn out to be collaborative ones in the future. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I encounter people that I really connect with. Sometimes I encounter people who I, who I admire greatly, but I just don't connect with. And mm -hmm. and I understand that that's okay, that it's better to work with people that you're comfortable working with than maybe not. So yeah, I, I would just really encourage people to maybe try to, to see it 
in those light. It might it might be slightly idealistic or yeah, like a fantasy world. But but uh, yeah, I I really do. I mean, my whole social life, you know, not not my whole social life, but my my life, my social life often revolves around this community of people. Some of my best friends are in this world with me and have become my best friends because of working together and engaging in these places. So I tend to see it more of a, a as a as a kind of a club than a <laughs> you know and a and a community and a yeah, a group of, of people who I genuinely really like and like working with and engaging with rather than thinking of it as like a a business proposition. But I don't know, you know, in the long term I don't know if that's the 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 best advice in the world, but it's one that I find most rewarding because whenever I have tried to engage with this culture in a slightly more I don't know, aggressive business way, it never is rewarding in the in the ways that I'm hoping it might be. So yeah, so I tend to I tend to kind of treat it more like a culture and a community that I that I that I'm a part of and that I'm contributing to and and I'm getting a lot from. Well, I mean to me that's a holistic approach and it's it's very much the way my career has unfolded. I mean yeah. a lot of what you said is just remarkably similar to you know, the way my career has gone and, and, and why, Yeah. you know, because yeah. it, it's never was a get rich quick scheme. Yeah. It's about, you know, love of the work and love of the community. And, and, and like you, so many of my closest friends are part of the community and, and yeah. that, you know, just doing your work from a place of, of real uh, engagement and passion and fun. Yeah you know, leads to a lot of, of good opportunities. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's also the, that's also a lot of the payoff as well. There's not a huge amount of money in this industry. There is some, but there's not, no. a, you know, but some of some of the payoff is, are, are the rewards that you get through those things, through having, you know, learning interesting things, meeting interesting people, seeing incredible work. Yeah, experiencing and understanding parts of the world and a human experience that you'd never encounter elsewhere. So I think, yeah, I, I, I really value that. And I see that as, as, as much of what I earn from being a part of this world as, as I do payslips and so on. Well, on that note, a great note, Aaron Schumann, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It, it's been really fun talking with you. I could talk with you forever because I think there's just so much overlap and we have friends in common, I know. Yeah. Um, but we'll <laughs> end it here for now and, and get a chance to talk another time. So, so thank you so, so much. Thank you. No, I really appreciate you asking me. Thanks so much. Okay. All right, Aaron. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin-Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. 